Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. If you weren't with us at the beginning of the service, my name is Ed Nall. I am the acting senior pastor here at Leesburg Community Church. We are preaching week by week, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Mark. Pastor Doug and I believe that preaching verse by verse is the best way to teach the whole counsel of God. That is, this method of preaching doesn't allow us to just preach from our favorite passages or to skip over difficult passages. Our text today is one of those difficult passages. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and it's parallel passage in Matthew 19. It is Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The sermon is called Moses' Concession, Not God's Intention. This is not an easy teaching to deliver in the culture in which you and I live but I will preach it because it is God's word to us about the most important relationship in most people's lives, the relationship around which our society is structured. The topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is particularly relevant during this coronavirus crisis. When many husbands and wives are spending large amounts of time together, perhaps more than they ever have in their many years together, that time can be a blessing. For some people it is, but that time can also reveal the stresses that are in the home, stresses that can cause some people to go running for the exits of their marriage. But God has something better for us. So let's read our text this morning in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray for the reading and the preaching of God's Word today. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of marriage, the gift of uh, not being alone, of having someone to travel through life with, to have children with, if You allow, and to uh, build something of the future within the kingdom of God, to transmit the knowledge of you from one generation to the next. Heavenly Father, help us to understand the things that you have told us in your word about marriage and about divorce and about remarriage. 
bless us as we study together. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1950s, Harvard sociologist Patiram Sorokin wrote a book in which he sounded the alarm about the disintegration of American culture and civilization. His central concern was the rise of divorce and the damage to families between the years of 1910 and 1948, the period of his study. In 1910, 10% of U.S. marriages ended in divorce. By 1948, it was 25%. Sorokin, speaking as a cultural historian, said, no civilization can long survive when one-fourth of its marriages are disintegrated. But the situation has gotten steadily worse. Many young people are now opting to cohabit rather than to be united in a marriage covenant that they believe might fall apart. In our culture, we have largely abandoned the Word of God as the one true guide for our lives, and we have substituted or elevated self-fulfillment to the place of the ultimate good. And when we do that, we hear ideas like these from authors John Adam and Nancy Williamson in their book, Divorce, How and When to Let Go. I'm quoting here. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and their lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two people to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. Close quote. Here's what these authors have done. By making self-fulfillment the guiding principle of life, they have encouraged us to call failure success, to call disintegration growth, and to call disaster a triumph. Their thinking is perverse. If we accept their advice, we have functionally reduced the Word of God to an optional guidebook that helps us meet our own emotional needs. God's Word is so much more than that. It is the inerrant Word of the Creator God to His people. It is meant to both glorify God and bring us joy. Self-fulfillment is for this life only, whereas God's Word brings abundant and everlasting life, life eternal. So here's where we're headed this morning. We're going to look at what marriage is according to God. What is its purpose? We'll see a couple of those. We're going to look at how divorce was handled in the Old Testament. We'll look at Deuteronomy 24 for that. We'll look at Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. That'll be in the text in Mark and in Matthew. And we're going to look at circumstances under which divorce and remarriage are permitted. And then we're going to look at the overarching idea here, and that is the grace of God, which is available to all who trust in Christ. I want to say before we dive into this that divorce is a serious issue, which is taken far too lightly in our society, but it is not the unpardonable sin, and divorce is not always wrong. 
And even if you have done something wrong at some point in your life in this matter, God has grace and mercy and forgiveness for you if you will genuinely repent and follow after Him. I also want to ask you to stick with me for the whole time this morning, the entire sermon. Listen all the way through. Don't get discouraged with how radical the teaching of Jesus seems. Everything Jesus is teaching, He is teaching us for our good. And as we move through our primary text and some of the other texts in Matthew and 1 Corinthians, we will see that wisdom is required in the application of everything that Jesus and the Apostle Paul will teach us this morning. Our guiding principle here at Leesburg Community Church is that when a scripture is difficult to understand, our guiding principle is that scripture interprets scripture. If something is unclear, look at other scripture on the same topic in order to receive the whole counsel of God. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at our text. So let's begin here. Why did God create marriage? Well, there are many reasons, but I'm just going to point out a couple. The first is this. During the creation account, God says, it is not good that man is alone. We were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But our enjoyment of God is magnified by sharing the gift of life, not by being isolated. Sharing the gift of life with our spouse. Marriage is God's idea. And it is a sacred union between one man and one woman intended to last a lifetime. So that's the first purpose. Not good for us to be alone. Secondly, God created marriage to put on display the relationship between Christ and the church. You see this in Ephesians 5, beginning in 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a mystery in our culture, and various groups and individuals have sought to redefine it. But the Apostle Paul says that the answer to the mystery is that marriage symbolizes and gives expression to the relationship between Christ and His bride, between Christ and the church. Now, if our marriages are meant to be a picture to the world of the relationship between Christ and the church, then what does the world need to see from us if we are to be biblically faithful? Here's John Piper's answer. The world that we live in needs to see a church that is so satisfied in Christ that its marriages are not abandoned for something as amorphous as emotional neglect. The deepest meaning of marriage is to display the covenant-keeping faithfulness of Christ and His church. And Christ will never divorce His wife and take another. Much more could be said about why God created marriage and families, but at least we have the main ideas as we approach our text. So in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. In verse 2 of our passage, we are told that large crowds are gathering to him, and it says he taught them. In the parallel passage in Matthew 19, Matthew adds that he's healing them. So this is Jesus' public ministry, 
Large crowds are coming to him daily. He is healing them of their diseases, and he is teaching them the word of God. But as Jesus is moving toward his appointment with death on a cross, which is his plan, he's also moving toward Jerusalem, where the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, where their opposition to him will become crystal clear. So the Pharisees ask him a question about divorce, not because they want to know the truth, but they do it in order to trap him or test him. The Pharisees ask in verse 2, and here I'll go to Matthew, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? That last clause, for any cause, is in Matthew. Here's the trap. If Jesus says divorce and remarriage is not permissible, the Pharisees would most likely run to Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded because he had pointed out Herod's sin in marrying his brother's wife. They most likely hoped that the same thing would happen to Jesus if he came out against divorce and remarriage. But there's something else going on in those days. The theological conservatives and liberals, and yes, there have always been conservatives and liberals on all issues, had an ongoing debate about divorce and remarriage and under what circumstances divorce was allowed. Let me read you the passage from Deuteronomy that was in dispute. Deuteronomy 24, beginning of verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And I'll stop there. The dispute was over this phrase, some indecency in her. There were two schools of rabbis. The Shammai school were the conservatives. And they argued that the only thing that would justify a divorce was a shameful act of sexual infidelity. Anything less than that was not a reason for divorce in their view. But there's another school of rabbis, the Hillel school. They're the liberals. And they took that same phrase, some indecency in her, and defined it as anything that the wife did that displeased the husband. And they included burning dinner or speaking ill of her mother-in-law. And then one of those guys, Rabbi Akaba, even allowed divorce, and they're not kidding, if a man found someone better looking. The liberal rabbis permitted divorce on a whim. This was not God's intention. It's not God's best. So here's the trap or the test for Jesus. If he sides with the liberals, he's going against Moses. If he sides with the conservatives, He's going against Roman culture where divorce is readily available for both men and women. Either answer gets Jesus in trouble with someone. At least that's what the Pharisees think. But Jesus is not trapped, not at all. He answers, as he usually does, by raising the stakes. He goes back to the beginning of time, back to God's original intention in the creation account. After all, God invented marriage. So Jesus says, let's see what God says. And at this point, we're going to move to the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew because it includes more detail. And I'll begin reading in verse 4. He answered them, 
Have you not read that He who created them... And by the way, when Jesus says, have you not read, you're in trouble. Because if you're a Pharisee or a scribe, you should have read this and you should have known what it meant. So He answers them. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus emphasizes two things in his answer. Intimacy of marriage and the permanence of marriage. First, intimacy. The two shall become one flesh. Marriage is the most intimate of all relationships, all earthly relationships. There is only one person in the world with which you can be one flesh, and that is your spouse. But the second thing he emphasizes is God's intention in the permanence of marriage in verse 6. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's something you need to notice. Up until now, he's been quoting from Genesis. The first phrase, they're no longer two but one flesh, is quoted from Genesis 2. But then Jesus adds his own words. He's writing new scripture. He's speaking authoritatively as God. And he says, what God has joined together, man should not separate. God's ideal, God's intention in marriage is a monogamous, intimate, lifelong relationship. Well, you might say, well, that was God's original intention, but since we fell into sin, that's not realistic anymore. Well, God's ideal was not changed by the fall of man into sin. Over 3,000 years later, the prophet Malachi wrote these words in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Why has God abandoned us, you cry? I'll tell you why. It is because the Lord has seen your treachery in divorcing your wives who have been faithful to you through the years, the companions you promised to care for and keep. You were united to your wife by the Lord in God's wise plan. When you married, the two of you became one person in His sight. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. Therefore, guard your passions. Keep faith with the wife of your youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, says he hates divorce. Malachi 2, 14-16a. So the Pharisees have another question. Matthew 19, verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus answers in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. This certificate of divorce was Moses' concession, not God's intention. Moses did not command that people get divorced. He permitted it because of the hardness of their hearts. He allowed it to protect 
the women, the wives, from being treated like chattel. Some men would divorce their wives, marry another woman, then divorce that woman, and take the first wife back. Led to tremendous insecurity among the women of Israel. But divorce was not commanded. It was a concession to the sinful hearts of the men of Israel. But we may not equate permission with a command. And now we come to the famous exception clause. Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This exception for sexual immorality is not in Mark and Luke. And some have argued that the clause is therefore not in the original. But it perfectly matches Jesus' teaching on divorce from the Sermon on the Mount, and it is in the oldest manuscripts. So why isn't it in the other Gospels? John Stott, great pastor and author for England, gives us a good reason, I think. Quote, It seems likely that its absence from Mark and Luke is due not from their ignorance of it, but from their acceptance of it as something to be taken for granted. After all, under Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. So no one would have questioned that marital unfaithfulness was a ground for divorce. I think that's a good answer. So the Lord Jesus permitted divorce on the one ground, sexual immorality. It was a concession to the hardness of our hearts and our sin, but not a command from God. If a spouse commits adultery, it does not mean that divorce is mandatory. It is possible that the marriage could be saved and perhaps even strengthened if the offended party would offer the grace that they have received from Christ to their spouse. I have seen it happen. So Jesus is saying, don't divorce. It's not God's intention for marriage. And he's saying that if you divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality and then remarry, you have committed adultery. Why? Why does he say that? Because the divorce should not have happened in the first place. So here's what we've seen in Mark 10. The Pharisees want to talk about how to, how to dissolve a marriage. But Jesus wants to talk about God's design, God's intention for the intimacy and the permanence of marriage. So divorce and remarriage is not God's best, but it is not always wrong either. Here's one way we can know that from an unlikely source, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. These are the words of God. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. If God can divorce his adulterous people, divorce must not always be wrong. The exception clause allows for divorce in the case of sexual immorality, but the weight of Jesus' teaching rests on God having put the marriage together and desiring that it endure. Are there any other situations in which divorce is allowed? Yes. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to begin in verse 
10, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband must not divorce his wife. But then listen to how Paul begins verse 12. He begins it with this phrase, to the rest I say this, I not the Lord. I not the Lord. Don't be confused by this. Paul is merely saying that Jesus did not teach on this topic directly. But these words are still authoritative because they come from the apostle. Beginning in verse 12, I'm going to go down through 17. To the rest, I say this, not I, or I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a, a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, he leaves the marriage, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife? whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. In the early days of the church, many people, thousands of people, were placing their faith in Christ. And that created some marriages where the wife believed and the husband did not. What was the wife to do? Paul says, stay with your unbelieving spouse if they are willing to live with you. And in verse 16, Paul gives the reason. Your spouse may be saved by your witness to Christ in the home. Paul is always concerned with our witness to Christ. But if the unbelieving spouse divorces the believer, Verse 15 clearly says this. The believer is not bound to the marriage any longer. That is, they are free to remarry. I want to pause here and tell you a story about a divorce that had a big impact on me. I had a good friend. Uh, he was married for 20 years to his wife. I spent hundreds of hours in their home as we worked together on musical and business projects. I watched their children grow up. As far as I could tell, they appeared to have a solid Christian marriage. They moved to Tennessee, and I had less contact with them. I heard through the grapevine that the husband was divorcing his wife. I immediately called him to try and dissuade him. He told me that he had put himself under the authority of his church and would do what they counseled him to do. Well, he had not done that, and he did not do what they told him to do. He divorced his wife, and he created havoc in his family, and he married another woman who was divorcing her husband. Some years later, I was in my friend's area for work, and I called him 
to see how he was doing. And he invited me over to his new home to meet his new wife. And I debated whether I would go, but I decided I would. And this man and his wife sat with me in their living room, and this is what they both said. We love and care for each other. But if we had it to do over again, we would have not have divorced our spouses and married each other. But now, what could they do? Another divorce? Another remarriage? That would most likely be compounding the sin. I tell that story for this reason. Please take your marriage vows seriously. Take what Jesus says about marriage seriously. When things are difficult in your marriage, offer grace to your spouse if you can safely do so. Take counsel from God's Word and from wise Christian people. Speak to one of your pastors. And remember, God's plan for marriage, it is to be intimate, it is to be permanent, and it is to be lived out for God's glory and your joy. As an aside, let me tell you one of the frustrations that every pastor I know has. Couples rarely come to their pastors with their marital problems until it seems to be too late, until one or both of them have already decided to leave the marriage. If you're within the sound of my voice, please don't do that. Don't wait that long. Come. So here's a summary of our teaching this morning regarding remarriage after divorce. The scriptures allow for remarriage in three situations. First, when your spouse is guilty of sexual immorality, you are allowed but not commanded to divorce and to remarry. When a believer is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, divorce and remarriage are permissible. And thirdly, I believe that if both parties were divorced before they came to Christ, then they are free to remarry in the Lord. I say that because when we come to Christ, all our sins are forgiven. Those who come to Christ are completely forgiven. To say otherwise would, would mean that divorce was the only sin for which Christ did not atone. That seems untenable. But there's one group of people that I haven't mentioned yet, and that is the offending party in a divorce. What advice can we offer to those who have committed adultery which has led to a divorce? I'm going to quote the great English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones because I can't do any better than he did. Quote, Have you nothing to say about the others, the offenders, asked someone. All I would say is this, and I say it carefully and advisedly, and almost in fear, lest I give even a semblance of a suggestion that I am saying anything that may encourage anyone to sin. But on the basis of the gospel, and in the interest of truth, I am compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unpardonable sin. But God forbid that there be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. No. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself on the boundless love and mercy 
and grace of God, you can be forgiven. And I assure you of pardon. I hear the words of our blessed Lord. Go and sin no more. Close quote. How can Lloyd-Jones say that? Because of the matchless grace of Jesus. Who though he had no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I think one of the reasons that things are difficult in some marriages during this pandemic is that when pressure comes, what's in our hearts is revealed. Here's a simple analogy. Take a tube of toothpaste. When you apply pressure to it, toothpaste comes out. Now, why is that? Because that's what was in the tube. Similarly, when pressures are introduced into our lives by something like this pandemic, whether it's a financial pressure or pressure in the marriage or pressure in raising your children, whatever it may be, when those pressures are introduced into our lives, what's in our hearts, what's already in our hearts comes spilling out. And sometimes that's ugly. So what do we do? If you have placed your trust in Christ, realize that your sin and the sins of all who trust in Christ, including your spouse, are forgiven. I often say this to couples when they come in for counseling. Which sin for which Christ died and gave his blood on the cross are you not going to forgive your spouse for? Which sin? You can't do that. Dave Harvey puts it this way in his excellent book on marriage. It's called When Sinners Say I Do. I highly commend it. One of the chapter titles is this, Forgiven Sinners Forgive Sin. If we've been forgiven of our sin, we forgive the sin of others. But if you've never trusted in Christ, I would say this to you. Let this be the day where you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you do that, you will receive forgiveness for your sin. And you will be enabled by God to offer forgiveness to everyone, including your spouse. In conclusion, earlier in the message, I mentioned that our marriages are meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. So if you are struggling in your marriage and considering a way out, consider this. Those who believe in Jesus are spoken of as the bride of Christ. And Christ has promised that he will never divorce his bride. He promises to remain faithful to us even though we sin daily. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands and wives, offer the grace that you have received from Christ to each other. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for this word from you, from the Gospel of Mark and Matthew and 1 Corinthians, all the way back to Genesis, your intention for marriage. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of marriage. I thank you for my wife, Heidi, who, with whom I've been married for 35 years. I thank you for her grace and mercy and forgiveness toward me. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone within the sound of my voice who is struggling in their marriage, that they would not wait until it's too late, but they would take steps. Call the church, call me, email me, 
I pray that you would cause them by your grace and through your power to reach out and to begin to deal with whatever the issues are in their marriage. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we could worship you. Thank you for the technology that allows us to be together even though we are not together. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.